You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. So for this week on the podcast, we're going to be focusing on the US midterms, and we're going to be doing so slightly differently than normal. So rather than do one big show where we focus on everything, it's going to be a series of podcasts this week, a series of bite-sized podcasts by Polling Matters Standards, where we speak to a combination of pollsters, but also um, people involved in the political process in the US. And this particular show that you're about to listen to is more on the latter side of things. There will be some podcasts this week where we talk to um, pollsters on the Democrat side, on the Republican side, of no side. Um, But this show is with um, Anthony Scaramucci, a former Trump uh, campaigner um, and White House communications director before um, being unceremoniously removed after 11 days. Um, Anthony has a book out, um, Trump, the Blue Collar President, and I wanted to speak to him about that, but also his experiences and uh, his perspective on Trump's uh, prospects in the midterms and moving forward. So we covered a wide range of topics in our time together, and here is that conversation. So I'm here with Anthony Scaramucci, a former White House communications director and author of the new book, Trump, the Blue Collar President. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, yeah, I really appreciate being on. Thank you. So... But I want to get into the stuff around the book and the midterms and everything else in the time we have together. But before we get into that, um, you, you're clearly someone that talks in glowing terms about President Trump in your book and elsewhere. Yet, I think to put it in a British way, he's a very divisive uh, figure, um, clearly evokes strong emotions for and against. What is it about President Trump and Donald Trump, the man that evokes positive emotion in you? Well, I mean, listen, I mean, there's a number of different things, unfortunately, and it's probably true in Great Britain as well as it is in the United States. There's a lot of division in politics now, and people have really gotten very tribal, and they're sitting on the far side that you can as it relates to ideology. So we're, we're dealing with far left or far right. And, you know, I think that the president historically, if you look at his personality, has been center right on business. And, you know, prior to becoming the Republican Party nominee, he was probably pretty left leaning on social issues. You know, he was a classic New York style uh, Republican, you know, uh, more fiscally conservative and socially liberal now, I guess, because of the uh, you know, the need to take the mantle of the Republican Party, he had to embrace some of those ideas like uh, pro-life. But but at the end of the day, I I still, and I write about this in my book, I think he had to come into the game on one side. You have to choose a team, unfortunately, in our uh, political system now. So he's on that one team. Uh, but I predict after the midterm elections, and I predict after, you know, the 2020 election, which I'm happy to talk to you about, if he wins the 2020 election, I think he could be a a postmodern president. I actually think he could be the guy that could cut deals because he's less ideological than these other guys that are more traditionally politicians. But but listen, you know his rhetoric has been rough. Um, his policies I think have been great for the country, but his detractors, you know, in our business now, it happened to me, and you know I was only there for 11 days, but it certainly happened to me. They they want to demonize you and characterize you, and you know if you're if you're on the right of this thing, the left says that you're a misogynist and a racist and uh, you're Adolf Hitler. I mean that's that's where they go now nowadays. And so I don't think any of that stuff is really fair. Um, that's where we're going, and I think what's happening is the people in the middle are becoming tone deaf to the whole thing or are disengaging, and that's unfortunate because. That keeps the 
fat tails, so to speak, of the extremes uh, running the process and keeping their people in power. So I want to um, I want to unpick some of those um, points that you've raised in this podcast. Um, but before we get into some of the details there, um, I want to sort of begin by talking about um, Trump's appeal up among what you call sort of blue collar working class voters. I suppose to the untrained eye, if we take a step back, it's not obvious why a sort of billionaire that lives on you know, downtown New York, lives in downtown New York and has his gold-plated lifts and all the rest of it that we've all seen on television. It's not clear why a person like that appeals to sort of white working class voters. So, um, I mean, what do you think is behind that appeal that is so clearly there from his rallies and from his poll numbers and so on? Yeah, I mean, so I think that's a big irony of the title. You know, if you're if you're a liberal and you hear the title of the president and you realize that the president was born with a golden toilet seat, you're like, okay, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's out of touch. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood, and my cousins who never went to college have embraced Donald Trump. How and why? And I describe it by recanting some of the original story of my family in America, but also some of the original story of the Trump family in America, because they're different arcs of uh, pursuit of the American dream. You know, they're, they're obviously became way more wealthy than my family did. My dad was an hourly worker uh, and spent 42 years at the same company you know, as a construction worker. Um, so the, the, the Trump family took a different path, but they're each very interesting stories about the American dream. And what I'm trying to relate to people, whether they like it or not, the president working alongside of his father developed a lot of understanding for construction workers, a lot of understanding for people that are in unions, uh, or, you know, it transformed away from just construction workers into coal miners. Uh, you can go throughout the United States or here on Long Island where I live, and if the person is a blue-collar person, there's a good chance of 50 to 60% of those people voted for the president. And so what I've explained in the book is that there was probably a 30 to 40-year vacuum of middle class and lower middle class advocacy coming from the executive branch of the United States. And that, that you know, reality, if you will, um, launched him into the presidency because you had, you know, listen, Secretary Clinton made a decision not to go to Wisconsin. That's a blue-collar enclave. Uh, she was told by her media and political consultants that she owned that state. That state was going her way. Otherwise, she would have shown up there President Trump made eight trips to the state, and uh, he won the state. And now, albeit he only won the state by ten thousand votes, you know that's how you win the presidential election. Is you got to go through the electoral college, and he was very successful doing that by capturing the imagination and then capturing the enthusiasm of these blue collar people. But how, how much does how much does race and racism um, play into some of this? I'm not for a second suggesting that. Um, all Trump voters are racist or anything. I'm the first to criticize uh, uh, that view when it's talked about Brexit here. Um, but at the same time, Steve Bannon's, you know, he's been working in the White House, of course. Um, I think Trump's most public, most original um, sort of political statements were around the Bertha conspiracy theories around the president, uh, President Obama's um, heritage and whether he was a legitimate president, which is far beyond criticism you saw anywhere else. We've seen the things, uh, the um, horrific scenes in Charlottesville and um, I think the president talked about good people on both sides. So, I mean, there's clearly a sort of darker side to American politics that the president seems to be willing to appeal to. Well, 
Well, I mean, look, he's also said Le- LeBron James is, you know, he, he uh, questioned his intellect. He questioned Don Lemon, the CNN anchor's intellect. He went after Maxine Waters, you know, and so you could, you could bundle all that stuff together and you, you know, his detractors certainly call him racist. If you know him personally, and if you ask somebody like Amoroso or anybody that's worked closely with him, he's an equal opportunity offender. You know, he is a, he's one of the last vestiges of political incorrectness in our society. So, you know, to me, I find a great irony in political correctness. Okay, there's a group of people that have decided that uh, I'm thinking something in my brain, but they're going to put a filter between my brain and my tongue so that I'm not allowed to say certain things that they feel are microaggression or that are inappropriate. And so you're not going to be able to negate 5,500 years of human discourse and human interaction because there's a group of people that have decided, well, you know, you know, we don't like the way you're talking, and so we're very righteous and sanctimonious, and so you're going to have to homogenize and scale down aspects of your personality. He's not like that at all. So he'll say what's on his mind, and uh, those people obviously, you know, he trips every microaggression wire uh, in the world, you know, and so as those bombs are exploding, those people are complaining about him and charging him with racism, but, you know, I, I don't think he's a racist. And, and by the way, I went on 26 campaign rallies. Most of those people, most of those people are economically desperate. They have no real white nationalism or ethnocentrism or any of that stuff. What ends up happening is, is that, you know, because of the way we get our news today, it comes in fragments uh, and it's pitched either very hard from the left or very hard from the right. You get you get that sort of uh, distortion. You get that sort of uh, you know accusation. But I I didn't see it when I was with him. Um, I I will say this, you know, and I said this to the president. He's probably one of these guys that has never really been discriminated against. So he probably does have a little bit of naivete about people that have actually faced that. And what and what about women? Because we're looking ahead to the midterms next week, and I was looking at a YouGov poll. Um, one of the polls that's towards the middle, towards the average of the president's approval rating. So I think among registered voters, it gave him an approval rating of 44%. So um, not an unfavorable poll for him. And yet among women in that mm-hmm. poll, 50% strongly disapprove. I mean, in the aftermath yeah. of um, the Kavanaugh hearings and everything else, and of course, all the other things we could document that he said before, it does seem like he has a political problem with women as well. Yeah, all of a sudden, I mean, you know, he won 52% of the white woman's vote last time i think only got 40 percent of the, the total overall um but yeah i there's no question you know i mean i think that uh you know it'll just be interesting to see what happens if these economic policies which are leading to three and a half four percent gdp growth and have cut the uh, labor market slack and tightened up the african-american and hispanic american unemployment numbers if that continues to progress the way it's progressing I don't know. I mean, it makes me think that his poll numbers are going to go up. If you look at the African-American situation, their poll numbers for him are trending higher and arguably are trending higher than McCain, Romney, George W. Bush, the last three or four high-profile Republicans that either were president or were running for president. So, so, you know, 
the economy does matter and the people's purses do matter. So rising wages in those areas and less unemployment, you know, you know, he may he may start doing better, even though his rhetoric is a little rough. So I want to I want to spend the last couple of minutes talking about the midterms and 2020. So I mean, how do you see next week going for the Republicans, and how do you see the president reacting? Because I guess there's two schools of thought. He might use uh, if the Democrats do take the House, and I'll get your views on that. He might use that Congress as a whipping boy or whipping uh, post to to run against in 2020, or he might try and be this deal maker that, as you you talked about, being a postmodern president, he might try and cut deals and. Uh, pivot towards the center. We've we've been told about that for a long time. It doesn't seem to have happened yet. So, how do you see next week going, and how do you see the president reacting if it doesn't go his way? So, you know, if you had asked me ten days ago, after the Kavanaugh situation, I thought there was a lot of tightness or tightening in the polls. But if you ask me today, after unfortunately this unspeakable tragedy in Pittsburgh and the incident related to the pipe bombings, which thankfully doesn't appear anybody got hurt from that. Those two uh, incidents, if you will, I think have slowed down the momentum for the Republican Party. And I think, you know, it seems more likely, better likely than not, that he'll lose the House and probably keep the Senate. So in the losing of the House, I think you're correct. I think the statement that you're making that he'll use them as a a gadfly or a whipping boy or a scapegoat, you know, basically tell people, hey, I was trying to do everything. I got the economy humming this big roadblock in front of me known as the Democratic House, and I need to win that House back. And I think he'll be very, very aggressively campaigning 19 into 20. Remember, he's raised over $200 million so far. So he's raised more money than any other presidential candidate in U.S. history. So so to me, this could be a, uh, you know, again, if the economy's okay, I mean, this could be a resounding uh, electoral success for him in 2020, irrespective of what happens. But I do, it does feel to me like the House is going to go to the Democrats. And do you think the economy will, will continue to be okay? I mean, you're a, you're a Wall Street guy. I mean, do you, you, yeah. you look at these but numbers? I'm a, I mean... I'm, a trained, I'm a trained economist. And so what I'm worried about is REITs have gone up. The interest-sensitive components like housing, capital goods expenditure, things like that, um, as rates are going up, they're slowing down. And so... I'm not saying we're going to get a recession this year or even into 19, but if we do get a recession, it's 2020, which frankly would make sense because you've had, a, by that time, 11, 12 and a half, 13 year economic expansion. And you know, most of our expansions in our country last about eight years. So you'll be long in the tooth on an economic expansion plus rising rates. It's not inconceivable that he's dealing with a recession in 2020. And so if he is, it's harder to win. Well, I'll tell you one really important thing that the Republicans have going for them. Can I tell you what it is? Yeah, go for it. The, the Democrats. That's what they got going for them. They're, they're fractious. They're disorganized. They, they haven't galvanized around any one leader. And they're off message because they're so busy dealing with his diversionary tactics, like his mistruths, his lies, his exaggerations, all of those diversionary tactics are so busy dealing with that they haven't really galvanized and picked the message for themselves. I'm sure on 2020, sort of final question, um, I'm sure that President Trump wouldn't fear facing anybody, or at least he'd say that. But if, you, if you're there sort of thinking, you're wanting him to win, of course, is there a candidate out there that you, you fear over others? Is there one that you think President Trump would find it much harder to run against? 
Well, I think Corey Lewandowski, the president's former campaign manager, and I feel the same way. Mayor Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, was able to secure the Democratic nomination. And again, I don't know their politics as, as well as I do the Republicans, but it doesn't, you know, it, it's unclear whether he's running and it's unclear whether he'd be able to secure it. But if he could, uh, he's an effective, very, very tough guy. So he would be somebody that I would look at and say, okay, that guy could potentially put a hurt on the president. What about people like Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren? In, in the British, British bookmakers seem to put those um, candidates as front runners at the moment. Who knows what will come in twenty twenty? I mean, do you think they they could be strong opponents? You know, I, I actually don't. But it, it's not not me being offensive to them. It's just has to do with the president's personality style. And I don't want to get in trouble for this because everyone's so politically correct now and all the microaggressions and. I'm going to say something that's going to come out as very sexist. People are going to be very mad at me, but I'm going to say it anyway. For some reason, okay, the way he fights and his personality style, okay, you know, it's not clear to me that those two women can beat him. And now, now maybe they will, and hopefully, you know, they'll, they'll, not hopefully, because I want Trump to win, but they'll be like, okay, I proved you wrong. There's just something about him. You know, the way he handles the media and the way he handles the rough conversations, debates, et cetera, it's not clear to me that they can beat him. So finally, if you had one piece of advice for the president um, looking ahead, what, what, what would that be? What does he need to focus on? You know, I think the restoration of his sense of humor, restoration of his gregariousness. Of, you know, he's known the guy for 20 years. He's a very fun guy to hang out with. But I think that the onslaught of attacks as sort of... Uh, made it harder for him to keep that upbeat, you know, positive sense of humor and all that other stuff going. So so to me, um, I would like to see him return to the apprentice version of Donald J. Trump, where he was a lot more gregarious and a lot more relaxed. Having said that, he's got arguably the toughest job in the world. So, you know, it's understandable that he's, uh, you know, he's in the position that he's in right now, which is that adversarial position with the press. But I think if we dial that back a little, and I've said this repeatedly, end the war declaration with the press, I think he could do a lot better. Anthony Scaramucci, thank you very much for your time. Oh, great. All the best to you. That was Anthony Scaramucci. A big thanks to Anthony for joining us on this week's Polling Matters podcast, this week's series of Polling Matters podcasts. Um, you can find out more information about his book, uh, Trump, the Blue Collar President, uh, on Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, if you want to uh, check that out, uh, please do. Um, that's part one of this week's series of podcasts. In the next couple, we'll be looking at um, the numbers with some uh, pollsters from the uh, Democrat and Republican side and looking ahead at some of the specific races, what the numbers are saying about what might happen next week and uh, where we go from here afterwards. But as ever, if you like what you hear from our podcast, please do share us on social media, give us a like or a positive comment on iTunes and other podcast apps, like our Facebook page, and so on and so on. Or maybe even just tell a friend about us. Everything helps get the uh, podcast new listeners, and we very much appreciate it. But for now, stay tuned for some more episodes on the US midterms in the coming days.